Today I got to talk about the third part of fasting in the food capital of the world, which is super awesome. Um, that was a joke. You don't have to laugh. I'm gonna I'm gonna get to you eventually, uh, and and uh, I'm so excited to talk about it. So if you have a Bible, go to Isaiah 58. We're gonna look at Isaiah 58, and we're gonna talk about what John Mark just said: um, fasting as standing in solidarity with the poor. And and one of the things that you have to recognize is that John Mark has already said it, that that uh, when we begin to fast. We begin um, to, like, not eat, basically, and if that's, that's what we're learning. How many of you fasted last week? Raise your hands. You guys did this. Yeah, look at this. Amazing. So the things that we're teaching, I listened to some of the podcasts that Joe Mark did, and I was like, oh, this is amazing. Prayer and, and starving the flesh to feed the spirit. Some scholars say when we fast, we feast on the spirit of God. Most of the time, I just get hangry, and that's basically all I experienced from fasting. Anyone want to admit that the only thing you experienced was complaining? Um, anyone? Okay, you guys are way more spiritual than me. But it starts there, and it moves to something else, and tonight, we're going to look at something else. And, um, and before I jump into Isaiah 50, I was praying this morning. I went to Joe Mark's office down the road, um, and, and I was like, okay, how am I going to do this? And, and then I was like, I'll just go on a prayer walk. And I started walking and praying for downtown Portland. And I just went down Hoyt. You know where Hoyt is? And I just started. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know anything. Nobody was out. It was early morning. And uh, I managed to get to Hoyt and Broadway. And right there, I ran into the rescue mission. And I, begin, I was like, oh, of course, this is where you want to lead me. And there were about 150 men and women lined up uh, in line to get showers and do their laundry. And so I was like, okay, God, this is, I'm preaching on that. I'm just going to hang out here as preparation tonight or today. And um, I began to talk to some of our brothers and sisters in our city. And I started to engage conversation with them. And I, I came across this one guy. And um, this guy uh, uh, just kind of welcomed me. And he thought I was homeless. Um, which, which is interesting, and um, he, I, I wasn't wearing this, but, but still, he thought I was homeless, and he was, he was so generous and kind. He was so concerned that I'd missed breakfast that he opened up his bag and offered to share the meal he got earlier that morning, and then pulled out his wallet, this, this piece of paper that was folded up that had a list of all the places in Portland that I could get food in the various days of the week from different missions. And then he, he convinced the people around him to let me cut in line, because he wanted to make sure that I could go um, and get a shower if I needed it. And then I had to break it to him that I wasn't homeless and I was just fine. Um, and, and I realized in that moment as I was walking away, I was, I was just like, gosh, wow, um, he's willing to share. I realized in that moment something important that I want to say from the beginning. As we talk tonight about injustices in the world, that often we can stay at this place of paralysis because of the pain that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis globally. Um, we can just experience, we see images of refugees that wash ashore. And for a moment, we have this, this discomfort, this outrage, this anger. But what we do next is we tend to scroll to the next story, do we not? We tend to just click on another Netflix series and just keep it going, or This Is Us, or whatever it is that you're watching. This Is Us is after Super Bowl. Um, any, any, any This Is Us fans? Okay, so, but... I, <laughs> um, what was I talking about? Okay, yeah, so I realized that we could have a this is us moment, right? And we miss the discomfort. But uh, as we experience the paralysis and the overwhelming experience of all the poverty and pain, um, actually the solution to the problems in the world is found right here within us. 
with the community of God. If someone who has very little is willing to share with somebody who has much, then the world could be a little bit better. Would you agree? And so as we enter into this conversation, let's just be open to what God might want to say to to each of us as individuals, but us as a church. So let's pray before we read Isaiah 58. Jesus, we thank you for what you're already doing and what you've done in the last two services, the amount of ministry that you want to release here. I just pray that it gets released. I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight that you would release them. And I pray that your, your spirit would fill them with passion and compassion. Fill them with an imagination of faith to do things extravagantly well in the name of Jesus and go after the people you are concerned for in this city and beyond. And we bless you, Lord. May we be as gracious to ourselves as you are to us. In the name of the risen Lord, we say together, amen. Some of us say it together, apparently. You don't know that. Um, Okay, so here we go, Isaiah 58. So Isaiah redefines fasting in Isaiah 58. And at the time that Isaiah began his prophetic ministry, the people of God, the community of faith, Israel, um, were known for an intense spirituality, uh, a kind of personal, self-centered faith that neglected the kind of just community God was after. So let's just read this passage together and we'll talk about it. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Shout it out aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes and complaining about Whole30? Is that what you call a fast? Is that just me? It's like, anyways, is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord. So the people of God were engaged in spiritual things. They were practicing spiritual practices like giving up food and prayer and seeking God for attention that that they might hear God's voice and they were missing the point as the community of faith. You see what Isaiah is after is he's saying if you seek God in prayer, be ready to hear his voice and obey. Because if God reveals himself to you, be ready to respond to God's character and heart. At the time Isaiah speaks this word to the people of God, the community of faith were spending their energies in prayer and fasting and seeking God, demanding him to respond. And that was a self-consumed spirituality inconsistent with God's heart for justice, righteousness, and peace in the community of faith. You see, Isaiah was making a larger point to the people of God at that time. He was connecting something to their vocation and identity. And it's, it's a deeper truth that Isaiah reveals to us in these few, few passages. And it's this simple, simple thing. That our relationship to God is directly connected to our relationship to each other. 
that our, we can never disconnect our love for God with, from our love for one another. And so Isaiah calls out the community of faith. He's, faith. He's saying to, that the people of God, look, they're exploiting their employees and their workers while they're fasting. They're arguing with each other during the spiritual activity. They're arguing with their friends and coworkers, their spouses, which I get, by the way, because whenever I fast, my wife knows I haven't eaten. My wife packs snacks for me like I'm a toddler because I get so hangry all the time. I mean, it's anyone else, any parent, any, anyone married here? I don't even know where, like... So, like, anyone else struggle with this? Like, I, and maybe it's a bigger issue for me. I realize I get really angry when I'm hungry. But this is what's going on. And Isaiah is saying, you're missing the point. This isn't about your spiritual practice. If you engage in these spiritual things, you are called to reflect the God that is shaping your spirit. You can't just, I'm going to wait for that. Let's just keep going. Isaiah 58. <laughs> Let's keep going. I really like 7 p.m. You're my favorite so far. <laughs> you're welcome. I, and you, I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but I really, you're, you're the highly favored ones. Um, bless you. Isaiah, <laughs> not, it's, okay, let's get serious. Verse 6, is not, this, is, this is Isaiah to the people of faith. This is the moment he redefines fasting. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own families? Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. Love this passage. Isaiah 58 says, fasting has something to do with undoing injustice, with releasing the oppressed feeding the hungry, and providing sanctuary for the homeless. Isaiah was surrounded by well-meaning spiritual people doing spiritual things, fasting as a way to get God's attention. But Isaiah summoned his audience to see that a genuine fast was a response to the injustice around them. The proper response to that kind of injustice was a kind of fast that not only got to know God, but also responded in compassion to the poor in efforts to establish justice on earth as it is in heaven. So when we fast, we cry out on behalf of the poor. When you experience the physical hunger in your body, let that hunger unite your body and spirit to those going without food, those longing for justice, those oppressed by systems, those waiting for God's kingdom to come, his reality to be experienced here and now. That's what we're talking about here. As the people of God, Isaiah is saying this, as the people of God, we can't just sing songs about God's justice without establishing justice where we go. We can't just get together with our Bible studies and talk about Jesus without becoming the hands and feet of Jesus everywhere we live, every day, everywhere we go. We can't just talk about God's grace and generosity without living 
a life of grace and generosity to others. This is what Isaiah is saying to the community of faith, and this is what we need to hear. This is what it means to stand in solidarity with the poor, to connect. Scott McKnight says it this way, and I love what he says. He says this, we can explain this theoretically as follows. Food joins humans to other humans because we share meals together. Whenever we give up food intentionally, we refrain from relationships. When a group protests by fasting, they both negate one relationship with the haves and they affirm another relationship with the have-nots. And since the structures of power always have sufficient food, fasting is not only refusing relationship, but it is also protesting the power structures that exist. So fasting has this deep dimension to it where we as the people of faith, and I'm going to speak to Bridgetown, Portland, um, we choose when we fast this way to recognize there are other types of people in the world, in our city, in our community that might not look like us, that might not have the resources like us, and we choose to leave the people that we pretty much surround ourselves with. Would you agree? Most of your community looks like you, votes like you, talks like you, dresses like you. It's just what happens. But as the church, we choose to leave that community for a brief moment, to give up food, to connect with a different kind of community that desperately needs alleviation from their burdens and sufferings, a release. This is what fasting does. It's a discipline. It's a practice. It's a unifying act of compassion. This is what Isaiah is after, is that we, as the people of faith, become the kinds of people that involve ourselves with other types of communities out there. Those that are experiencing the injustices around the world, from hunger to slavery to systemic poverty to human trafficking to homelessness and racism and abuse. When we allow ourselves to experience hunger, we align ourselves in a solidarity with with those who are suffering around the world. Are you with me? This is what Isaiah is doing. But Isaiah is connecting something that we can kind of miss through the text if we just read through. Isaiah connects fasting to something else for the people of God. And I want to just take a quick detour and then we'll come back to fasting. Isaiah connects fasting to our identity and vocation as the people of God. That fasting has something to do with who we are and why we are here in the first place. Um, And to understand this, I just want to do a quick detour through the Old Testament um, and make two quick points. And I just want to, I want your agreement with this. I don't want to prove this. I'm going to show you a different way. But the first thing I want to say is that what you see in the scripture is that the people of God are called to reflect God's heart and character in the world. Would you agree with me in this? And the second point I want to make is what you see in scripture. um, Scripture reveals a God who has an overwhelming concern for the poor, broken, and marginalized. Would you agree with me with with that statement? This is not some social gospel thing we're talking about or a progressive liberal movement. We're talking about the Bible and the overemphasis on caring for the poor, marginalized, and broken as the people of God. 15% of the Bible is talking about what to do with the poor that are among us. Um, 2,000 unique verses talk about it. So this is, this is an overwhelming sense of God's heart is for the poor. And this isn't just something we, have, we can skip over. It's something we have to address. And it's connected to who we are and why we are here. 
And Isaiah um, connects that vocation and calling, or that vocation and identity. Uh, and what you have to know is that to, for the people of God, Israel, the defining narrative of story for Israel was the story of Exodus. And in the story of Exodus, it begins with the Israelites being enslaved to a dominant military superpower called Egypt. And the head of this empire that's oppressing the Israelites is the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And in this story, the Israelites cry out to God. And they cry out because they're oppressed. And the story of Exodus is God hearing the cries of the oppressed. Because our God is a God who hears the cries of the oppressed. And the story goes on to show that God sends a messenger, Moses, to free the Israelites from Egypt. And what you have is this, this story of who God, which God is God. Is it Egypt's God or is it Yahweh? And the people of God are released and freed from the, the oppression of Pharaoh and the empire. And they're brought to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with the people of God. And he says this to them in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. He says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is their new identity and calling, vocation. That as the people of God, they are called to reflect God to the world. So a priest is someone who stands in the gap. A priest is someone who reflects or, or, or intercedes on behalf of God to the rest of the people. And then he turns and, and intercedes or reflects the people back to that God. That's the calling of Israel. And to be holy is to be set apart. To, set apart. to be set apart from the rest of the nations and set apart for the nations to see what God is really like. And how are they designed? How are the people of God supposed to reflect God's character and heart to the rest of the world? And the answer is the law. So you have this whole Old Testament, 613 commandments of how the people of God are going to live together with each other and the rest of the nations, and they're going to follow the covenant they've given, the commands of God. And in the commands, you have all of the 613, you have all these random laws and rules and regulations on what to do with the poor, the orphan, the foreigner, and the widow among you, because God has a heart or the poor, the broken, and the marginalized. So you read all throughout the Old Testament what the people of faith are supposed to do. It has something to do with who they are and the why they were there in the first place. And so I just want to go to the most obvious book that we'll go to is Leviticus. So go to Leviticus. I know you're reading that during your, your devotions this week. Leviticus chapter 19. I know we're on the same reading plan. So Leviticus 19, um, you can go there. And I'm going to just talk about a quick passage, these obscure passages about what to do with the poor. Um, Leviticus 19 verse 9. And for all of you that own vineyards, this is going to make complete sense. So when you reap the harvest in your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So in Leviticus... You guys are going to, some of you are going to have some fields. Some of you are going to grow some grapes. Here's the law, the gleaning rights. You get one shot to, to get all the grapes off the vines. If some fall, leave them. Don't go, leave the edges of your field for the poor and the foreigner. So written into the law for the people of God is some of you are going to have something 
Some of you are going to have enough. Some of you aren't going to have enough. Those that have enough, share with those that don't have enough. Are you with me? Leave the grapes. You with me? It's, this is like so deep. You're like, dang, you have a de- lots of degrees, Darren. I can see you've got initials after your last name. Nope, I do not. So Deuteronomy 15. <laughs> Deuteronomy 15, 7. Oh, I love it. Here we go. Verse 7 of chapter 15. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you or cry out to the Lord against you. That's another translation. And you will be found guilty of of sin. Give generously to them and, and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow brothers and sisters who are poor and needy in your community. My little translation at the end. So Deuteronomy is written uh, to the Israelites right before they enter the promised land. They were 40 years in the wilderness, and now they're going to inherit abundance and excess. And this, this passage is written, and it's saying, hey, some, there's going to be poor people among you, people that don't have enough. When they come to borrow um, something from you, don't be hard-hearted. They command us to not be hard-hearted, but be soft-hearted. Don't be tight-fisted, but open-handed. Don't think to yourself this thought, hey, it's year six, year seven is next year. You can count, six, seven. And, um, and if I give what they need, they're, they're not going to have enough time to pay me back in one year, so I'm not going to actually get back what I gave them. Don't think that thought to yourself, because if, the, if you do, they'll cry out to the Lord. Now, this is important to understand this passage. Here's what's going on. The author is connecting this story back to Exodus, the defining story. And there are two main characters. One is the people of God, the Israelites, who cry out to the Lord in their oppression. And our God hears the cry of the poor. And who's the other main character other than Moses? The other main character, in case you're taking notes, is Pharaoh. And what does the scripture say happens to Pharaoh's heart when God is doing something new with the people of God? His heart is hardened. When you enter into a land of abundance and you have more than enough, don't allow empire, oppression, and domination enter into the community. It will enter in slowly and subtly with with hardening your heart to your brothers and sisters in need. A couple years ago, I went on a men's retreat and uh, I hate men's retreats. Um, and it was the stereotypical men's retreat. Like, we watched Braveheart in every movie that had anything to do with violence and masculinity. We uh, went camping, and we, went, we did camping, we shot guns, we did horseback riding, we went off-roading. It was like that type, like, it was 
crazy. I, I, I would rather go and lay by a pool and get a massage. But I went on this trip because my best friend was like, let's do it. It's so awesome. And he's like, he convinced me to drive from Southern California to Colorado and camp along the way. I've been camping like four times in my entire life. And all of it involves like a bed and AC. But anyways, <laughs> we did it. And we had two cars, six big dudes with camping gear and all sorts of stuff. And halfway to Colorado, before we get to our first campsite, our, one of our cars breaks down in Beaver, Utah. It's important. Anyone from Beaver, Utah? No? Okay, great. Okay, anyways, nothing important about that. But we land there. We leave a car. We pack all the stuff from the other car on top of the car. We're talking four feet above the forerunner, just stuff tarped together, stuff's hanging out. And um, all the guys, six guys, cram into a forerunner. And I managed to get to the front of the, uh, uh, the passenger side, so I was riding shotgun, wasn't smashed in there, I had my backpack up there, and, and we're starving because we didn't have time to eat, and we're all hungry and moaning, we gotta get to the campsite before it closes, blah, 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 we're driving, I open up my bag, and I see that I stuffed all my food in my bag, and right on top was a package of dried mangoes. Exactly. And I began to open it, and then I stopped quickly and thought to myself, if I open this package of dried mangoes, I will be forced to share with everyone else. So I began to slowly push the dried mangoes back into the bag. And as I did that, I heard, I had a thought in my head, if this is how you are with dried mangoes, what else in your life do you do this with? Oh, I opened up the dried mangoes. Anybody wants some? It was completely gone instantaneously. But this is, I was right, calculated efficiently. Um, the way of empire and domination begins with things like dried mangoes. And the thing is this, the church, it is our vocation and calling to take care of those in need. This is who we are and this is why we are here. This is so essential to the people of God. It's all over the scripture. Matthew 25, you know this parable, but it's the end times. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That, that passage is not about the least of these suffering of poverty around the world, uh, it's about the church who are suffering poverty and injustice around the world. It's brothers and sisters. It's referring to the body of faith that are in prison for the gospel, that are suffering. So, so if the call in that passage is that we take care of, our, of each other. And when we take care of each other, that actually is a sign of heaven on earth. That's God's kingdom, his reign, his reality as it is in heaven here and now. Matthew 25, James 1, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, look after orphans and widows in their distress. 1 John 3, 16 says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I love this passage. I love talking about love. It's our culture's obsessed with it. We, we love This Is Us. We love romantic comedies. We love singing songs about it and writing sonnets. What soft but light through yonder window breaks it is the east and Juliet is the sun. Arise, pale sun, and kill the envious moon who is sick and pale with grief. That thou her made are far more fair than she. Uh, that's, that's Shakespeare, if you didn't notice. You're welcome. Um, 
But this is the problem. We make love so abstract because I love burritos and tacos and I love my wife. <laughs> she knows that though. Um, but John, the author, wants the church to know that love is not some abstract idea. Love is not some ideal, lofty experience. It, it, it's so, it, it, the body of Christ has been resurrected from the dead physically. John had meals with Jesus. He shook his hand. He hugged Jesus. He was with him. He heard his voice. He saw him with his own eyes. He touched him with his own hands. Love is not some abstract thing. It's very, 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 very practical. He then goes on to give you the practical love. Yes, let's lay down our lives for each other. Then he goes on to say, verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? If anyone's rich, has lots of stuff, and doesn't take care of the... No, if anyone has possessions, material possessions, and sees someone in need and has no compassion, is the translation, how does the love of God be? How is it in that person? Because our love is not some ideal sonnet. Let us love not with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is the call. Let's get back to it. As the people of God, we fast to stand in solidarity with the poor. We leave grapes on the field for those that don't have a field of their own. We give those who want to borrow from us because God pulled us out of slavery and set us free. We care for the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, and sick, and imprisoned. We take care of the orphans and the widows. We share our stuff with those that don't have enough. We do this because we know what love is. We do this because this is what God has done for us. We do this because this is who we are, and this is why we are here. We do this because if we don't do this, this whole thing falls apart. That's what God is saying to us. That's what Isaiah is after. This is who you are. Be who you already are. This is why we are here in the first place, to reflect God's heart to the world. Not to just sing songs or practice our spiritual things, but to make sure that everyone has enough to go around. This is not something we talk about in groups as like justice, like this lofty thing way over there, some abstract idea. This is, brothers and sisters, this is getting your hands dirty. Dirt under your finger, fingernails with love for your brothers and sisters that are suffering. This is what God has done for us. This whole thing will fall apart. And the truth is, society as we know it will fall apart. You don't believe me. There's this amazing book called The Spirit Level. And it's what uh, Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson discuss why greater equality makes society stronger. In 30 years of researching um, the impact of self-interest consumerism has had on society. And here's the reality. The greater the inequality in a society, the greater the number of problems people face. The greater the gap between the rich and the poor in any given society, no matter how rich that country is, if there's a greater gap with them, the worse life is for everyone, even the rich, in that society. And science and, and research show that there's greater physical health problems, greater mental health problems, greater drug abuse, greater educational issues, greater incarceration rates, greater obesity, greater violence, greater teenage pregnancy, and greater anxiety. All because we forget who we are and why we are here. All because we keep the dried mangoes for ourselves. 
And I don't want to pretend like I know how to fix society or how to handle these massive injustice issues, but I do want to say this. I know the scripture, and I see in scripture, God, it desires the kind of community that is generous, that shares, that works and fasts as a way to care for the poor. Amen? I love this passage in Acts. This, this description of the church in Acts 4.32, it says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that, their, uh, that any of their possessions was their own. They simply shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of us that there were no needy persons among them. This is a goal that I have for the garden, the church I lead. And this passage has wrecked me in so many ways over the years. And a few years ago, I had this experience where I was about to preach and I had this, this word of knowledge. And I, didn't, I never know if it's a word of knowledge. That's the reality. We're always doing this, like figuring it out as we go. And I, and I got up on stage and I couldn't preach and I had this number in my head. And I had to stop and say, let's just wait on the Lord. And the number was 1200 and I thought, I was like, $1,200. Somebody in our, in our church needs $1,200. And, and I, was, I was saying, I'm like, we're going to pray, worship, keep going. So I'm praying, like, Lord, what is it? And I, he, he says, I, I thought he said, there's a single mom in this room that needs $1,200 for rent. And I'm like, this is a crazy, I've never had a word about money. And what, what am I supposed to, I'm, I'm about to preach. This is awkward. I'm like, and I, I was like, I couldn't preach. So I just like, I said, hey, church, you guys trust me. Some of you do. Okay, cool. Um, no one's going to die, at least. Um, we haven't had that happen yet. Um, is there a single mom here that needs $1,200 for rent, and you have proof that it's, you need it? And this woman starts weeping. First time in our church, single mom, four kids, with the eviction notice in her purse, $1,200. That's crazy. I'm like, okay, so that's okay. All right, now, uh, on, on the go, like, what are we going to, I don't have that, like, what am I, all right, guys. We pass the bucket for tithing and offerings, offerings. Let's pass the bucket again. Throw as much cash in as you can. And we're just going to give it to this woman to show that God is a generous God. Exactly $1,200 was given. It's amazing. You, you know, because this is what happens when the Spirit of God comes in a community. It's not just about feeling warm fuzzies. It's about social equality. It's about no needs among us. It's about forgiveness of sins. It's the release of anxiety. It's peace among brothers and sisters that have been quarreling. And that, that, that moment did something to me because I was like, wow, that was really easy. No system, no, no program. It was just, hey, let's take care of the single moms. 53% of my city, 500,000 people in Long Beach, one out of five are in poverty, but 53% are single mom families. We have an issue, crisis. Single moms keeps getting highlighted. So what, what we decided to do from then on is, hey, there's no needy person among us. Let's make that an initiative for our whole church to get around. So we started passing the buckets twice once in a while. Hey, guys, we just passed it for our tithes and offerings. Low number, no worries, not going to judge you. Um, but if you're here and your rent's paid and you have plenty of food to eat, awesome, and you have cash, throw as much cash in as possible right now. And if you're here and you don't have enough, take as much cash as you want out. Just make it as clean as possible. So we do that. 
And we've done that several times. And two weeks ago we did it. And it was over $6,500 given to the needs among our community. It was so cool. I was watching ushers, like people passing the bucket. Normally they collect the money. This guy was like, do you have enough? Here, take some more. Just keep taking some more. I was like, yes, that's awesome. Like who does that? And and our church is growing because of this. It's so awesome. Um, Just kidding. Just kidding. You all laugh, but we're all here to consume, right? right. Some of us are here to consume dates for the future. Anyways, okay. That's how I met my wife, right? (laughs) Uh, The 7 p.m. at Rock Harbor was where you went to find a future wife. And so I don't know what's happening in Bridgetown. But some of you are giving some looks, and some of you are Snapchatting during the sermon. Cut it out. Where was I? So we passed the bucket. Last two weeks ago, we did it. Single mom, three kids. She comes up, asks somebody, hey, can I just get $20? We had collected it, and we were passing out because not everyone takes money. $20 I need for diapers. Oh, no, you can't have $20. You can have a lot more than that. For, you know, it was like, we just, it was so amazing to give and take care of their needs. And then this other story happened. This is so crazy. So somebody parked their car blocking the entrance to the parking lot in our city. It's so super compacted where we are. So we had to tow their car. And they come running out as it's getting towed away. And it's a, it's a single mom with, like, a bunch of kids. And she's crying. She comes, and our, our associate pastor's like, I'm so sorry. We tried to figure out. We tried to find someone. So the car gets towed. But we had money left over from what was given. And we're like, we just got to give it away. This isn't for tithes and offering. And John, my, my friend, was like, hey, I'm going to go pay the towing company. Because I don't want her to associate what happened to her with our church. I'm like, dude, that's awesome. Go. He goes. The woman is overwhelmed. She's weeping. The next Sunday, last week, she comes to our church, comes forward for prayer, prays a prayer to accept Jesus into her life, and goes to Alpha on Monday. Right? That's nuts. That's like the best story. It's got everything involved. It's hitting like every box. But this is the power of generosity. This is the power of sharing. And we're not talking about super wealthy people in our church. We're talking about people that barely have enough to get by saying, I've got enough. I'm going to give a little more to those that don't have enough. Because this is who we are. And this is why we are here. What does any of this have to do with fasting and solidarity with the poor? Here's what it has to do. When we fast, when we choose to give up food to connect with the poor, we are training our hearts in compassion. We're choosing something that is unnatural at first. Most of us, we walk just past those people. I don't have any money. Well, you do. You just don't have any cash. I can't really help you. And, and this, this act, this intentional act of preparation, I'm going to give it up. I'm going I'm to use that money that I would have used on food or LaCroix. And I'm going to give... Okay, don't fast LaCroix, okay, but, or coffee. And um, I'm going to give it to the poor. And so that's what we do. When we do that, we're, 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 we're acting when we don't feel like it compassionately towards our brothers and sisters. And my definition of compassion is to feel and act towards others the way God feels and acts towards you. So we've been fasting. This kind of fast Christians have been doing for thousands of years. Uh, one early writing, writer, um, a few, like 100 years after Jesus, 
wrote this uh, in regards to Christians fasting bread and water. He says, estimate the cost of the food you would have eaten on that day and give that amount to a widow or orphan or someone in need. Be humble in this way that the one who receives something because of your humility will, uh, will, may fill his soul and pray to the Lord for you. Augustine wrote this, how many poor can be filled by the breakfast we have given up that day? And then I love this passage, uh, or this, this writer, 6th century. So this has been going on for thousands of years. We're just participating in the, uh, an ancient practice that Christians have been doing, caring for the poor as we fast. He says, let us fast in such a way that we lavish our lunches upon the poor so that we may not store up in our purses what we intended to eat, but rather in the stomachs of the poor. That's beautiful. So the early Christian re- uh, leaders assume that the church would fast and assume that the money they would spend on themselves for lunch that they give up that day, they would give away to a person or in need or a cause. And I want to invite you to practice this, to grow in compassion, to become a kind of church that regularly as a community uh, fasts for your brothers and sisters that are experiencing injustice. So how do we begin? Where do we start? I want to invite you to start where you are. Start with where you are. Start with your life as it is with your family, with your friends, with your Bridgetown community group or communities that you have, and with your church. See, we can focus on these massive statistics in trying to solve injustice, and I believe some of us here are called to do that. Some of us are doing that. But where do you begin? You begin to ensure that the people that you're in direct community with have everything they need. Living in a covenantal community that includes those that don't have enough. So my, my wife and I, we lead a house church. So we have house churches. That's what we do. We multiply house churches um, at, on top of our Sunday gatherings. We, we intentionally disciple and create environments for the kingdom uh, to flourish. So we multiply house churches every year. But we're, we just, um, six months ago, God told us to sell our house and move to a neighborhood where we can experience community and walk among the poor. And that was a crazy story in itself because we had a three-week-old and a three-year-old at the time. And telling a wife who's uh, perfectly curated living spaces and is nesting with a three-week-old that we're going to sell our house because God said so is a really bad idea. Unless it's God. And she was like, yes, let's do it. And courageously gave it up to live a different life outside of the suburban, insul- like, insulated community that we, we bought a house in. So we, we decided to rent, but we also decided to start a house church with people from different spectrums of life. And our house church is amazing, and it's the hardest thing we've ever done because people are hurting. In our house church, we will take communion together, and we'll regularly say, hey, if anyone's here, before we take the bread and, and wine or juice, uh, let's just make sure that we have everything we need. We've we got to ensure that you have enough food to eat that you don't have any overwhelmingly, um, overwhelming bills that are causing suffering and burden. Can we just talk about our needs? And so uh, most of the time people are good, but in the past four months, people have needed rent. So we take care of rent together. People have needed medical bills help, paid for. So we take care of that. People have needed therapy. A lot of people need therapy. Um, you're like, we need therapy. And um, and we try to help out with that. So we see that as a practice, it starts with your communities. And, and so this is wrecking my wife and I because we're living with people that can barely get by. And it's challenging the things that we thought were so normal to purchase. Like, is it okay for me to buy an Apple Watch when I have a brother or sister in my life that can't afford rent? Now, I'm not going to give you the answer, but I struggle with that for a month. 
and then I got it for Christmas. <laughs> but it was a real struggle, and I was struggling, and, and I had to ensure that that guy, and now that guy has a job, which is awesome, so I, that, that burden. But, but all to say, we're living with people in different walks. So start with your community. Start with where you are. Start um, with what you can do. Our, our church, we pass the bucket twice. We also do a gift card drive where we, we try to stack gift cards for for public transportation, for um, restaurants and gas cards and um, grocery stores. So, because we always have people coming and, and I'm so, I just like, I don't want to go through like filling out applications in this, this program. We don't need a Facebook group. We just need to be the church. So fill it up every year. We get thousands of dollars and every year we're just, we're passing out gift cards to those in need. That way we can take care of the needs immediately. We don't have to make this institutional burden. Just be who you already are, church. My wife and I do something called beans and rice night. It's my least favorite, it's my least favorite night of the week. And my son loves it. I have a four-year-old. And we do this thing where we fast as a family and we give up uh, a meal that, that week. And we just have beans and rice as a way to connect ourselves to the global poverty around the world with our friends who are living in India furthering the gospel in parts of India that are serving the elite, the untouchables. And so we just, we, we, our goal is to give that money away to those that are in need and we're, our, our, some of the people in our church are beginning to do this because so we're integrating these things. So all to say, I want you to begin to think about what it would look like to fast. Oh, I, I, I did this in the last service. So here's some thoughts. How do you begin? Well, you're starting with your community. Number one, can you go back to number one, please? Number one, choose to fast. 24 hours as a way of crying out for the poor and those suffering and experiencing injustice. So as a community, you're going to do this. Choose a day that you'll do this with your community. And then the, the part number two that's important is to number two, calculate um, the money you would have spent on food, coffee, LaCroix, beer, wine, and give to those in need. And I love what uh, Scott McKnight says. He says, what we give up in food we, when we fast can be converted to gifts to the poor. What we give up in time not spent eating can be converted into time spent relieving injustices. Um, and if you don't know right off the bat, if you don't have needs among you, if you don't have relationships with people that are suffering, uh, Bridgetown has a bunch of, of places all over the city and beyond that you guys are already partnering with. So think about going online and giving to those amazing causes that you guys are already supporting as a church and just do above and beyond tithes and offering. This is above and beyond. Um, three, begin to integrate weekly and monthly rhythms that connect you with people suffering in your city and beyond. Choose to fast two meals or to only eat two meals. Most of the world, do you know this, only eats two meals a day. And then I want to, for all of you that are like hardcore, I want to challenge you to eat relief rations. How many of you care about refugees around the world? Or here's what um, is given to those that are refugees by World Food Program. This is what they get a day. Okay, this is what a person that's a refugee or displaced will get for an entire day. Two cups of rice, a third cup of dry beans or lentils, two tablespoons of olive oil, one third cup of corn soy blend, um, four teaspoons of sugar, two and a half teaspoons of salt. And that's what they get for the entire day. So I just, this is a creative way to be like, I'm going to pray for the injustice that's going on around the world and the refugee crisis around the world and I'm going to eat. So this is just a tangible practice. And you can do any of these, or you could just say, Darren, I don't like you. I'm not going to do any of these, which I understand. But I want you to do something. I want you to train your hearts in compassion and learn to serve others intentionally. Okay, close. Why? 
Why are we doing this? Why, why even talk about this? And, and the reality is this. Your vision statement as a church is in Portland as it is in heaven. This is why you are here. This is who you are. To see God's will be done and his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So when we fast we, and we cry out on behalf of the poor, we are crying out for people to experience justice and shalom and the way God intended life to be in the first place. Now, here and now. And that's the goal, is that you become that kind of church that sees justice in the city and you become part of the solution to this massive problem. And I'll close with this great promise at the end of that Isaiah 58 passage. The end of Isaiah 58, there's this beautiful promise about the kinds of people the people of God will become. And this is a promise that I believe is true for you as a church. And listen to it from the words of Eugene Peterson from the message. Verse 9 of Isaiah 58, if you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about people's sins. If you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness, your shadow lives will be bathed in sunlight, I will I will always show you where to go. I will give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You will be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use old rubble of past lives to build anew. Rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything. Restore old ruins, rebuild, renovate, make the community livable again. Amen? Amen? Amen. Okay, thanks. Okay.